0: For well, the last few weeks, we've been in a short series of lessons dealing with our relationships. We're looking at our relationship that we have with God and the relationships we have with people in this world. And this morning, we're finishing this short series in the relationship that we have with one another. Well, take that back next week. We're going to be looking at the culmination of these relationships once we are face to face with our God. And when you stop to think about it, isn't that what life is all about? Relationships. Stop and think about that. When you look at the core gospel message that Jesus tried teaching those in this world, he'd ask someone who was trying to test him, this lawyer, saying, you know, what is the great commandment? What was his answer? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, with all your strength, or might, or mind, depending on your translations. And he said, and the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. Both of those two great Commandments, he said, was on which the entire law and prophets stood. Everything. Look at those ten commandments. The first half of those ten commandments are in relationship with whom? With God. And the last half of those commandments are in the relationship with whom? Your neighbor. That's where all the law and prophets hang on those two great commandments. And when God sent forth his only begotten son, it was for? All of us. It's relationships. When we're talking about relationships, though, you know, we're looking at those that we have in this world that we're trying to reach the gospel to. And then when we talk about that, we're naturally talking about evangelism. Well, when it comes to this mindset and we transfer this discussion then onto church growth, Christians often mistake a growing number in a congregation as church growth. Is it? If we go from one last week, we had we had 133 last week. And so let's say this week we're 150 and next week 170 and next week 200. And let's say we have 200 coming on an average basis. Does that mean the church is growing? Some believe it to be so. This supposed growth is what I would call when we have like. The McDonald's who had placed membership this morning. It's what I call Christian shift. (laughs) I mean, the church has not grown. They're still in the Lord's church. They just happen to be in this particular congregation and join themselves to the work and the worship of our Lord together among the saints here. That's what we have. But the Lord's church has not grown. We have brethren who have moved from the Birmingham area. (laughs) Church is still the same. They've moved from one location to the next. And so sometimes we get into the, this growth standpoint as, as if the numbers mean something from that standpoint. We know better than that because we know that growth comes when those who are in this world are added to by the Lord himself into his kingdom. Now the church has grown. So that's what we're talking about when we want the Lord's church to grow. But that takes us. Being evangelistic. And so the church may feel good about more numbers, but it may not necessarily be growing. Well, that said, excuse me, let me go ahead, next slide here, if this will work. I want you to imagine, if you will, if the church were it actually to be evangelistic. And I believe this is a problem in the Lord's kingdom, particularly. In wealthy nations. If this congregation of God's people were evangelistic. Or if the Lord's body in this nation were evangelistic. And if God were to give the increase. How many of you would be real overjoyed? I mean absolutely thrilled. Jerry went like this. He's <laughs> one. And he's very evangelistic minded. I mean I would venture to say most of us. Hopefully, all of us would say, yeah, absolutely. It's very edifying when you have people in this world turning to the Lord. What's that saying? Be careful what you pray for. You might get it. I want you to stop and think about the ramifications of what we just smiled about. Because the very things we smile about are some of the things we despise. You see, we want souls to be saved because they're precious and we would all agree with that. But the result then is that the church building becomes filled with what? Worldly people. That's what what happens, right? When you have the world coming into the Lord's body, you have worldly people who are saved by the blood of Jesus and we want them to be transformed by the renewing of their minds. But they're still coming out of this world. Now what happens if we were to be real about those we teach the gospel to? We talked about this last week. Take the homosexual, and the homosexual comes into the body of Christ. You take that drug addict, and he or she comes into the body of Christ. You take an adulterer, a child molester, a murderer, and they're added into the body of Christ and added into this congregation brethren would we still sit where we are if they sat right next to us our new brothers and sisters in Christ would you or would there somehow be like these kind of? we got a radius of space around some of these brethren that come from the world and are now as brothers and sisters in Christ sitting in our midst I got to tell you from a personal standpoint last week it strengthened me, encouraged me greatly. When one of our elders got up before us and confirmed our need to be evangelistic minded. And it strengthened me last week to have our elders sit down with Jerry and, and, and talk to him about things that we were wanting to do as far as our mindset, evangelistic goals that we have and Jerry sharing with his, his past. Very encouraging to me. But when we look at the result of what happens if the congregation of God's people here would become evangelistic, this is, this is what's going to happen. What you're going to have in my mind is a potential for a church at Corinth here in Franklin. And that's not necessarily a bad thing in and of itself. Because you saw that church growing in as the letters that Paul wrote to the church there from one letter to the next, you saw things that they had done to see that growth. But you look at a church that's full of worldliness, and it's going to manifest itself. And then sometimes we might look at the people among us, our own brothers and sisters, and look at churches in and around there going, but they're stronger than we are because they have unity, and they, have, they get along so well, and you know, we've got worldly people. We've got molesters and adulterers and thieves and so on. You know what? What does 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, or thereabouts tell us? Maybe it was a little bit later. And such were some of you. Past tense. Changed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Having their minds renewed. You see, when we look at the ramification, initially what happens in the body of Christ when, when we're reaching the gospel to this world, there's baggage being brought in. And it's ugly, worldly, filthy baggage. That's what happens. That's what happens when when God added me to His church. He brought a filthy individual. He cleaned me. And thankfully, none of you knew my past because you wouldn't have anything to do with me. Probably for your own good. (laughs) But you see, that's what happens when we start evangelizing God's word into this world, you have people whose lives change magnificently, gloriously, because of what God has done. So the ramification is, if we're going to be evangelizing, we're going to get worldly people coming to the church, and they're going to bring in this baggage. But we get to be changed. But until that change takes place, we're talking about relationships once again, not with people in the world, but with our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's what we're looking at this morning. We're looking at, relationships, and when we get at the heart of our relationships with one another in Christ, we're going to look at it from a standpoint that each has baggage. We've got our own set of beliefs, if you will, that are brought in. We've got our own set of behaviors that are brought into what we call the church. And I'm telling you, it's a great potential, like dynamite, for things to explode in a bad way possible. But brethren, God didn't give us any other way. (laughs) That's why the church is made of saved sinners. Some more morally upright than others in our own eyes. (laughs) That's what happens when we are added into the kingdom. We bring that baggage into the kingdom. And, and when we look at First Corinthians, as i mentioned, chapter 6, verse 11, when he says, such were some of you, that's who belonged to the congregation of God's people in Corinth. They had a background of sin. They were washed by the blood. But now they're having fellowship with Jews. I mean, imagine this. And we talked about this a, a quarter or two ago. Um, it may have been the Ephes- yeah, Ephesians chapter 2. When we talked about that middle wall of partition, chapter 2, verse 14 in Ephesians, that had been done away with. You're talking about Jews and Gentiles. Imagine that. Unless you lived in the first century and before then, you would realize that that is very, very explosive mixture coming together. The closest thing that we can even comprehend would be Blacks and whites during the civil rights era. Very explosive potential. Can you imagine a Jew getting along with a Gentile in the first century? When they are added into God's kingdom? We can read of it. We can read of it in Acts chapter eleven and particularly in Acts chapter fifteen. When there are those saying, wait a second, what's what's going on here? We got Gentiles. We're not supposed to even eat with them. And now they're added into the kingdom. That's what happens when sinners come into the kingdom of the righteous. Not self-righteous, but the righteous. That's what we have. We also have this belief baggage. I remember, I I love this so much. I remember when the afternoon I obeyed the gospel and I said, I'm coming back tonight um, for services after our business meeting and what have you. I said, i got a song. I want, I want to sing to the whole congregation. I want everyone to know this song because it's a really good Hawaiian song I learned growing up. <laughs> Mitch, you don't know how things work around here. We don't have a chorus. <laughs> we don't have one person singing in front of everyone. It's congregational singing. And, and you're talking about a person who's brand new in the body, doesn't know all the rules. That's the baggage you bring in. Don't know about modesty. Don't know about decency and in order. Don't know about the order of the Lord's Supper. <laughs> All those things that, that bring us into discussions regarding fellowship. But that's what happens when those who are in this world come into the body. And I remember one particular day about seven, eight years ago when I was preaching in um, Griffin, Griffin, Georgia. And here's a woman who had been a panhandler for 30 years in the streets of Atlanta. That's all she's known for decades. And she's added into the body of Christ and she reeked of alcohol. And I could just imagine as I saw reactions on the faces of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's your, bro- here's your new sister in the Lord. That's the reaction. That's my sister in Christ. Asking for money. That's all she's known is to lie and ask for money. That's all she's ever known. Brings that baggage into the body. So if we're looking at relationships and we're talking about those who've been added into the Lord's kingdom, these are who we're talking about if we're going to be evangelistic minded. And how do we get along with one another? Because when, when you look at relationships, every one of us here in this room, we look at one another from our view Of what's right and what's wrong. Based upon our understanding of scripture. Even our misunderstanding of scripture. We do that. And you know I'd like to think that after 22 years of being in Christ Jesus. That I've grown in the word of God. And in my own arrogance I might think well. I'm looking at Julie now so I get to pick on you. You If Julie would just spend more time in God's word. She could be spiritually minded. Well, just like me. We do that, brethren. We do that with one another at times. Maybe not even realizing it. And we want others to understand the authority of Scriptures the way I've come to know the truth. And so we have brethren that believe and do things that you don't think is wise. You don't even think is scriptural. Do you suppose that that will ever change between now and until the Lord returns? That's not going to change. You know, when when I hear of brethren, and I've heard this said too many times. We've gone through a split in in the church, but now we've got a good, strong church. And a few years later, that smaller congregation of God's people worshiping together in a smaller location goes through another split. And now we really we're kind of weeded out. Those that. They're just not good for the body. And all of a sudden, we're down to me and my family. And maybe a relative or two. Brethren, that's happening more and more. And now the church is really good. And we've got this mindset of the church being this family instead of all these people who are still in the body of Christ, but that we don't have fellowship with. It's because of this mindset that we have. I want us to be challenged this morning about a couple of things. And when I say these things, I'm talking about it from a standpoint of what we look at as Bible authority. OK, so we'll deal with that for a few minutes. But I want us to note that. When it comes down to, quote unquote, issues, we've all got our views and we believe we are the ones that are right. I mean, otherwise we change if, we, you know, if we have good on our hearts, we'll make those changes. Look at some of these, quote unquote, issues, if you will when someone's added into the kingdom of the Lord and he, he reads 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 and he says, I want to lift up holy hands when I pray to God or when I sing to the Lord. How do you react? You know, we have a young man that was visiting this past Wednesday night. He's very literal in his view of Scripture. He was sitting with Jimmy last Wednesday. His belief is when you enter the premise, when you come through these doors, women are not to speak at all. So some of you women might have said hi to him and he didn't speak to you, probably. And you would think, that's strange. That's his belief. That's the baggage he brought in when he came and visited with us last week. And when someone spoke out in Bible class, well, that was too much for him. So he, I don't I'm guessing I'm presumptuous, but it, the, the timing was perfect with his belief up and left. That's, that's the baggage that is brought in. Someone comes in and says, I want to lift up holy hands because 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, it says, lift up holy hands. So what happens when brethren do that? Well, That's not decent and in order, Mitch. Or how about if someone wants to give you a holy kiss? I mean, it's all thrown. There's at least three or four passages in the New Testament scriptures. Greet one another with a holy kiss. In fact, if you want to get into Bible authority, it's in a command form. But we come along and say, well, but the culture, context, you know, we get context. That's culture. So we greet one another. In this case, for centuries with a holy kiss. Now we do it with a handshake or a hug or something. But what if someone wants to give you a holy kiss? Or how about someone comes along and they decide they're going to come in our worship service and they're going to fall prostrate in prayer because... First Corinthians 14, 25. There's that word and that's what people did. And so you have brethren doing that. I mean, that would be kind of scary for some of us to see someone laying on the ground, praying to God or someone, you know, maybe not so bad with the kneeling, but if they fall prostrate. What if the elders decided we're going to start laying hands like on new deacons? And put our hands on them and, quote-unquote, have them anointed over our given responsibility. That sounds very Pentecostal. But there is the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 13, when Barnabas and Saul was sent out by the elders, hands were laid on them, sending them off. What if they were to do that? I mean, these are explicit things that we have in Scripture. And then when we talk about Bible authority, we ask for a pattern There's explicit patterns, if you will. We could go on and on. What if some decided to religiously celebrate the birth of Christ because Jesus was born? Knowing that December 25th, most likely, in fact, in all likelihood, that's not his birthday. I've known brethren that do celebrate that and other brethren saying that's wrong. Your soul is lost. Brethren, I know I'm hitting a lot of areas, some of them more sensitive than others. But you get the point. Just about all these are explicit in Scripture as to things that people would do when they're added into the kingdom. When they're baptized into Christ, having their sins washed away because they believe that Jesus died for them. This is the baggage they bring in. Or if we were to go on, what about any subject matter that you believe to be odd at best? But at worst, I don't think we have Bible authority. How do we handle those situations? You see, in my estimation, when we talk about relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. A lot of these and a lot that we've not even touched upon yet that we'll deal with some more in just a minute. Result in splits. That should never be. We're talking about safe sinners. Once you become a Christian, you don't know everything. You're not perfect in knowledge of God's Word and His doctrine. And I've talked to preachers and elders who, after years of being in the Lord, still growing in grace and in knowledge. Well, if that's the case for men that are shepherding the flock, and men who've been preaching for decades... With all the knowledge. Then what does it mean for the rest of us? But that we will grow in the grace of knowledge as well. And that we're fallible. We're not perfect in behavior, nor perfect in understanding. Perfected, yes. Perfected in Christ. And perfect from a mature standpoint, yes. But not from a perfectionist view of things in a literal way. And so we talk about all these things. And in fact, when we get into other divisive issues, notice these. Head covering. Because we have sisters in Christ and husbands who believe we as women should have head coverings. But other brethren say no. The order of the Lord's Supper. Some will look at Matthew's account or look at maybe Mark's account. But Luke chapter 22 might have a different rendering. Like, for instance... There, Jesus prayed with regard to the fruit of the vine first. Then went into the unleavened bread. And then prayed again as you do, as you do this in remembrance of me with regard to the, Lord, the fruit of the vine once again. And someone says, you know, if you do it with the, the fruit of the vine first, you're in sin. Take the next thing which is the cup, one cup or many cups. And we turn around and say, well, no, that's the the content of the cup and not the cup itself. That's what's important. So context tells you it's not one cup. We could have multiple cups and be okay with God. But our brethren to our right says you're apostate. Because you have multiple cups and the scripture is the pattern revealed in scripture is one cup. So we get into this. Or it could be the number of faithful children needed. um, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. If a man desires to be a bishop, he desires a good thing. He shall be the husband of one wife, and he needs to have faithful children. But what we do is, we'll say he needs to have all faithful children. That's not in the passage, and I've checked every English translation. I even checked it in the original language. The word all is not there. But that's the teaching that we have. We bring this baggage in. And we solidify this belief system into a particular doctrine. And I know I'm going to get burned over the coals for that statement. But that's what the scripture says. Have faithful children. Not have all faithful children. But there's the debate. And we want to draw lines. It could be the demanding of the name Church of Christ. When we can read in the scriptures to the Church of God, which is at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, when you read the first two verses. But demand, the scriptural name, is Church of Christ. Now, I know I'm hitting a lot of sensitive areas, brethren, but I'm trying to bring a point very clear. And the point is, we have things that are explicit in Scripture, but will bind certain beliefs and practices. And then there are things that are not even written in Scripture, and we bind it as if it were word for word in the Word of God. And there's always brethren to your right and always brethren to your left in this congregation, let alone outside of this congregation. That's the reality. That's a fact of what happens. Brethren, how do we relate to one another? How do we deal with all this baggage? Because I've not even got into the cultural baggage that I spoke a little bit of last week. I've not got into the, the older brethren excuse me brethren my old school brethren and the younger and the new brethren who are going by the wayside because of the new ways you know you got all that powerpoint stuff now we're going to lose our souls that's that's what i've heard from a particular brother in christ you know we got new songbooks We've got new things in that. First of all, there's nothing new, right? <laughs> the scripture, the, the truth is still there. But the things that we do are a little bit different. We've got one service here. Some congregations think we are less spiritually minded. Question the elders. There's always brethren to your right and to your left. In this congregation, let alone among, quote unquote, churches of Christ. So. When we get at the heart of things and we talk about divisive issues and there could be more that we could get into, I mean, literally get into the subject matters. I don't know if they'll ever be resolved until the Lord comes. What we all agree upon, I say generally agree upon. Is the fact that we need authority for what we do. We need direction, and God's Word is. The revealed Word of God is that direction. And so we have what we call, uh, I've heard it in journals, so I'm just using what's said, but you've got commands, examples, necessary inferences, or synonyms to each of those words. So, C-E-N-I. Brethren, it is my observation after studying for so many years about these things that we're not perfectly consistent on every one of these things. I'm just being honest. We're not perfectly consistent. I'm still waiting. No one has ever come up to me and tell me, Mitch, here's why we have Bible authority for this beautiful arrangement of flowers on this stand right here. No one's ever spoken to me except for one person. I still don't understand what he was saying. And I'm, I'm being serious. I wasn't trying to be joking. I still don't understand what he's saying. So when we get into this command and example and necessary inference, you got those to our right saying one cup and those of us and to our left saying multiple cups. And both saying Bible authority, both saying commands, apostolically approved examples, necessary implications instead of inferences. Or inescapable conclusions or whatever synonym. So when we talk about these issues, we're always going to have them, brethren. That's just the reality of life in what goes on. Well, I'm going to just pose this for your mindset. What did our forefathers use in the Old Testament scriptures? You suppose they were like, OK, we need oh, we don't have apostles. Wait, prophetically approved examples. Because You didn't have apostles, so you couldn't have the apostolically approved examples. But we have commands necessary inferences or implications as given in God's word. Listen to this as given in God's word. Do you suppose that many of our Old Testament brethren had scripture as far as a totality of what we call the Old Testament? They had Deuteronomy. They'd have all the first five books by the time you get into Israel's history. They had that not in their own homes or in their tents but they could go to the priest who was studied in the law by this time, when we look at about 5, 6, 7, 800 um, B.C., before Christ, that is. But what did they use for authority for the things that they were doing? I want to tell you right now, they used God's Word. I can guarantee that, because thus it is written, and they would go back to the Scriptures and so on and so forth. But from a hermeneutical standpoint, from an interpretation of Scripture, what did they use? What did they use? In Joshua 22, when you read verses 20 to 30, when the eastern tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they created this altar that was an exact replica of the bronze altar used for the worship of God and the sacrifices at the tabernacle. What did they use, brethren? Well, I can tell you what, there was no discussion of C.E.N.I. or anything like that. But I believe they had authority for what they did. Otherwise, God would not have allowed that or would have condemned their actions. But now these brethren thought what they were doing was without authority. The brethren on the western side of the Jordan said, what are you doing? Don't you remember Achan and his sin and what he brought into the camp of Israel? And then they explained themselves saying, listen, we're not using this to worship God. We're not using this to worship idols. All this altar is a witness is that we belong to the 12 tribes of Israel. And we want it so that when our children and our children's children and their children would ever ask who we are or the children on the western side of the Jordan would ask, this would have been a monument. This altar of witness would be a monument that would show we're one in the Lord's kingdom. That's the reason. When the brethren understood that, they accepted this altar and it was there for I don't know how many years before it had been destroyed or taken away. How about the Feast of Purim? When you talk about holy days, the creating of a holy day, when you fast forward centuries later into the days of Esther, when you got the Persians and the, the Persian Empire ruling over the Israelites, they're in captivity now, right? Israel is in captivity. They've forsaken God, and God has sent them into captivity. So now, while they're in captivity, there's a man named Haman who just despises. This Jew, Mordecai. And with regard to this venom that he has, he wants every single Jew completely destroyed. He wants Israel annihilated. Long story short is, God used Mordecai, God used Esther to deliver Israel. And after this deliverance, Mordecai says, we're going to remember this day. So they remembered it in, in that citadel, in that city, and then they had it proclaimed throughout all the empire for all the Jews to remember this day. And it became the Feast of Purim. And today, it's still celebrated by Jews. But it was a holy day established centuries after the law of Moses had been established. What did they use? To establish this new holy day. Let me get one more. We'll just use these three as examples. Synagogues. In the book of Deuteronomy, when you read that God said when you establish a synagogue, here's what I want you to do. Anyone know that it's not in Deuteronomy other than me? it's not it's not even Exodus. It's not in any Old Testament book, period. The first time you hear of it is when? In the Gospels. That's the first time. Where was the authority to build these buildings? It's the same question that we get asked in the New Covenant era. Where do we get authority for this building? You know, they met in the temple. They met under the tree. But where did they get the money for monies to be used for a building? And so we go on with our debates. So what I'm saying is, you know, we look at our forefathers and we talk about hermeneutics. What kind of hermeneutics did they use? You know, it's, it's the same God. Same authority that we do things with. Thus, it is written. But how do we properly, to the nth degree, to a nuanced level, become consistent with every facet? I'll give you one more. This is affecting us. There are some churches that believe it to be completely unscriptural to have a funeral service in a church building. I've worshipped with these very brethren. And we believe it's absolutely acceptable. that's why it's being done here. You're going to have things that brethren are always going to question. It's always going to happen when you add people into the body of Christ. They bring in whatever baggage. And that baggage changes and begins to look like someone else's baggage because of their baggage that they brought in. And it's been changed by someone else's baggage. And that's the molding that takes place. But there is a molding much greater than the molding of one another's influence upon one another. And that's being molded into the image of our Savior. That's the one we can all agree upon that we need to be changed into. And hopefully that change is going to establish ways in which we deal with one another in Christ. So I want you to stop and consider these things with regard to these passages. Ah, I'm going to add one more. But naturally, the. The overall picture is for us to be putting on Christ, right? Because he was perfect in the way he lived. He established authority and when he spoke, he spoke with great authority. The things that he did was always pleasing to his God, even if it was contrary to the mind of many Jews. This is even while living under the old law. We're told in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17 to live this way. I'm going to look at some of these passages real quick and then get into some other ones. One other one. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12 tells us, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, here's what I want you to put on. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. But above all these things. Put on love, which is the bond of perfection and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of God, uh, Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Teaching, admonishing one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God. Now, I want you to stop and think about this passage. What's the verse we focus on more than any other verse in in these six verses that we just read? Verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. And so we get into a Bible authority mindset. Making sure we have authority for everything we do. And we do need authority for what we do. But the picture is putting on a new man. That's how we do everything in the name of the Lord. By putting on tender mercies and kindness and brotherly brotherly affection. Long-suffering. That's putting on Christ. And above all those things, he said, put on love. So when when Dan was reading for us in Romans chapter 12, verse 9 through 13, and we could have gone on with that passage, with how to live as a Christian, if you will. You know, let love be without hypocrisy and so on and so forth. That's what we're doing. We're putting on Christ. 1 First, First Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 4, what, verse 1, very similar to Colossians 3, 12 through 17. What we're doing, brethren, above all things, just as was given here in, in, in this passage of Scripture in verse um, 14 or 15, above all Put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Perfection. Now, I know I'm going a little bit past my time here this morning, but you know that I preach pretty short nowadays, right? So So I want to use these extra minutes because I think what we're dealing with is very, very important. When we put on Christ, what are we putting on ultimately? We're putting on that perfection. That perfection is, in fact, love. And I'm telling you, from the bottom of my heart, with full biblical and scriptural conviction, you cannot overestimate genuine, true Bible love. Can't do it. Cannot be done. What we talk about as overdoing it is when we do the warm, fuzzy love. The good feel. That feel-good love, to me, is a byproduct of biblical love. It's solid. It's substantive. That is why when you look at the church at Corinth and look at all the issues that the church at Corinth had, starting in chapter 1, verse 10 following about let there be no divisions among you, brethren. Going through the chapters about, oh, you know who I was baptized by? I was baptized by this brother. Well, guess what? I was baptized by that brother. Today, you know what I, I hear? I hear names that are very popular among us. Well, I was baptized by this brother. Just think of the greatest names among brethren today. That's who baptized me. I was taught by him. I sat at his feet. Well, whose feet did he set, sit at? Whose feet do we ultimately sit at, brethren? Christ's. That's whose feet. That's who belongs all glory. No man. Not one of us in this room, not one of us in this world proclaiming Christianity. And as great as a servant as the apostle Paul is, he wouldn't want you to glory in him, but in Christ alone. As great as an apostle Peter was, to glory in the Lord. It's only because of my selfishness that I will accept that kind of a glory. Can I want build me up? That's not what we have. We put on Christ, and we look to Him for our leadership, for our guidance in everything. Ultimately, what we're putting on is this love. I want to spend five minutes and then we'll be done. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 13. I know I talked about this about a year ago, and and some of you said, well, I don't know if I necessarily agree with you on your interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13, so I decided this morning, I would like to at least expound just a little bit on what I believe the passage to be teaching, and I believe it has everything to do with our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's why. The overall context of chapter 13 is a parenthetical to the discussion of what's going on in chapters 12. In fact, you can go back to chapter 11, all the way through chapter 14. But when you deal particularly with chapters 12 through 14, spiritual gifts, he stops in the middle of this discussion and says to them, here's how you handle one another with all your spiritual gifts. Look at what he says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there are three paragraphs in this chapter. And these three paragraphs all deal with a segment discussion regarding love. Each coming from a different angle to make an overall point that you get at when you finish this chapter. Okay, So in chapter 13, I want to read this. Read it paragraph by paragraph. First paragraph, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Okay. Overall message, you need love. Right. OK, so we're all good. So far, it's easy to get. I can be the most godly man. I could be the most uh, the biggest doer, have the most faith. But if I don't have love, it didn't profit me or doesn't profit you. Nothing. Excuse me, my, my bad English <laughs> it doesn't profit you anything. OK, that's the first paragraph. Second paragraph explains what love is. Then here we need love. And here's what love is. Verse four says love does these things. It suffers long. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. I got a lot of work to do. It doesn't behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It doesn't think evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity. But it does rejoice in truth. In fact... Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That's what love does. Brethren, that's the core. When you talk about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind, this is the practicality of love being shown in Scripture. So he's telling us what love is like. And so we're given all this information with regard to you need love. And this is what love looks like. This is how love behaves. So the next paragraph, he goes on to say this. He's going to make a contrast now with these spiritual gifts. In verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror, in part that is, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am also known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now, when we typically go through our Bible studies and we go through these texts, we say we need context. What is the passage speaking of? When we get to verse 9 following, for some reason, we use this passage to teach when the Bible is made complete. Brethren, it is my estimation, that's a far stretch. We've been talking about love this whole time, about love. And he's been contrasting love where there is no love. Contrasting what love looks like and what it does not look like, what it behaves like, what it does not behave like. And now he's contrasting when you have these spiritual gifts, but you don't have love. It's like this. It's like a little child. You think like a child, you behave like a child. But when you grow up to be a man, do you think like a child? Do you behave like it well, not supposed to. You behave like a mature individual. In that sandwich, from verse 9 to the last verse in 1 Corinthians 13. In that sandwich, he says, this is what abides. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of them is love. Like Colossians chapter 3, when you read verse 15. But the greatest of these is love. It is the bond of perfection. It is my estimation that the church lacked love at Corinth. Got all this worldly baggage. Now they're all together. They've got all this fighting that's going on. And why can't they grow? They've got all these spiritual gifts. Why aren't they growing? Because they're behaving like children. What they needed to learn was love. And Paul had enough. And he gives this parenthesis to say, here's how you solve your problems. Brethren, I believe when we as a congregation of God's people and when the Lord's church can learn individually and collectively How to demonstrate love toward one another in a practical, biblical, scriptural way. What happens to the church? Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 16, particularly verse 15 and 16. The church is not going to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. The church won't be tossed to and fro with all its divisiveness. They're going to be able to speak with love God's truth. The church is going to be one mature body. That's what Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 is dealing with. That's what Colossians chapter 2 and 3 are dealing with. That's what 1 Corinthians, the letter, is dealing with. When you become perfect, when you become mature, you don't need these spiritual gifts. Because when you speak the truth, you'll speak it with love. You'll love God. You'll love his word. You'll love teaching his word. You won't need these gifts. I could be wrong on this exegesis of 1 Corinthians 13. I believe I'm 100% right. That's why I'm teaching it. And I can just imagine this is going out on recording and it's going to be spread at some point. (gasps) Did you hear what Mitch said about 1 Corinthians 13? There's always going to be brethren to my right and to my left. Brethren, I'm thankful that you're not my judge. Thankful that God is my judge. I have to stand before him, not before you. But here's the, the powerful thing. You cannot deny this out of 1 Corinthians 13. You cannot. That when you do have love, everything is profitable. So that when you speak in tongues, so that when you have faith that could move mountains, so that when you have the gift of knowledge, so that when you give to those who are in need and you do it out of genuine love, brethren, it profits everything. To the glory of God. That's what happens. And that's the relationship that we need to get along with one another. We can talk all day. We can have Bible studies all day about being loving toward one another. But when it comes to the daily grind, and I don't feel good, and you say something that offends me, and I send my two-week resignation in, jokingly, Not everyone in this congregation got the letter that someone sent to someone else. (laughs) When you have love, you can deal with all those kinds of things with love. And I want you to know, that's what allows us to have unity. The song that Ryan led for us. That's what allows us to keep the commandments of the Lord and strive, even imperfect as we are in understanding Imperfect as we are in practice, that's what's going to do and keep us going on in the kingdom of our Lord. Brethren, we need to stand for the truth always, every single time. And as best as we are able to go down to as nitty gritty of a level that we can for truth. But realize when we get to that decision, there's always going to be someone else that says, "Uh uh-uh, always. We've got to stand firm in Jesus Christ. And always be humble to open our minds to when we see Scripture for what it is that we are going to follow God's Word and not the traditions of men as if binding it like God's Word. That's how we live with one another. But that's going to take this changing right here. How we view each other so that I don't look at Martha and go, Martha, Martha, Martha. I'm looking at her as my beloved sister in Christ. I can look at Jerry. I look at him as my beloved brother in Christ. I can look at Jimmy and and I can look at Joel and I can look at Mark and I can see Jody and, and Mr. Charles and everyone. Brothers in Christ and your wives, your families. Brothers in Christ. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. That's what we're going to do when we live to the glory of God. In the end, God is always going to separate those who truly belong to him or not. He's going to be that judge on that day of judgment. We're going to be set apart as as sheep from goat. But remember, always in the Lord's church is always going to be safe sinners. Every one of us in this room, however morally upright we may behave, we're still safe sinners. And when we evangelize God's word and bring those into the kingdom, we're going to get more baggage. And when the baggage come in, how are we going to handle things? Because we can do all the right things, but if it's not without love, or if it is without love, it profits us nothing. The greatest commandment, love your Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. That includes your own brethren. includes people in this world like the Jew is to the Samaritan and vice versa. Ultimately, how we relate to one another, in my opinion, and I think it to be scriptural, is based upon our relationship that we have with God. The way we understand our relationship with God, that He saved us from our sins. We're dead in the trespass of our sins. We're enemies of God. Yet we're justified through the blood of Jesus. Then it's not because of me, but because of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of that thankfulness, I will serve my God with everything that I have, according to all His ways, being thankful. And brethren, when you do the same thing, I'm telling you right now, I believe God is glorified. And I believe he can be glorified in this way. So I want to ask you, how do you relate to one another? Because there's always going to be something you'll disagree with. Always. So the Lord comes. We're always going to have some nuance that we'll disagree with. How do you relate with one another? Remember the words of Jesus to that lawyer. Remember what God did to bring his son into this world. Remember what the Apostle Paul said. Without love, you have nothing. It profits you nothing. But with it, the greatest of the commandments, you have everything. That's what I want you to stop and think about in your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ.